Hello and welcome to A History of the United States. Episode 62. Native Americans 2. Myths, Legends and Folktales. Understanding Native American history is inherently problematic and contradictory. The problem lies between the two different approaches to the subject. One of them is used by historians and archaeologists, of which this podcast falls into the category of. And then there is a second contradictory account, the one offered by the Native Americans themselves. The following remark was made by Ernest Birch Jr. in his 1991 work, From Skeptic to Believer, The Making of an Oral Historian. Quote, Several scholars actually boasted to me that they do not believe what native elders have told them. Ironically, but perhaps appropriately, many natives do not believe archaeological, historical, or ethnographic accounts of traditional life when made by Euro-Americans, unless they are corroborated by the oral testimony of the elders. End quote. This is confirmed by documented interviews with tribal elders. When presented with migration routes across the United States following the arrival of man from Beringia, an elder of the Navajo Nation examined it and said that it might be possible, but not for his tribe, before repeating elements of the Navajo origin story. Anthropologist Robert Lowey states in 1917, quote, Indian tradition is historically worthless because the occurrences, possibly real, which it retains, are of no historical significance, and because it fails to record, or to record accurately, the most momentous happenings. End quote. The two elements are seemingly incompatible. The approach of the history of the Native Americans since the 19th century has been to find facts value-free and then place them in a chronology. This system has changed over the course of the 20th century, where we now demand reasons as well as exploring other historical factors, such as social history and ecology. This is contrary to the building blocks of Native American history. If we can turn away from the Navajo of the southern deserts of Arizona to the Arikasas of the plains, Douglas Parks, in his work, Traditional Narratives of the Arikara Indians, finds five key elements of native storytelling. 1. Timelessness. There isn't a strictly ordered historical narrative, but rather historical elements which can move about and join into mythical elements. It all happened in a past. This may be partly to do with the Native American understanding of time being cyclical rather than linear. 2. Organisation. This again has to do with chronology. We tend to group things by chronology and order them according to that chronology. In contrast, it has been said that the best way of organising Arikara mythology was into categories based upon what types of animal they featured. 
Three, interpersonality. The insurance of accuracy through oral repetition. Five, humour. While I try to inject humour into this history, according to some iTunes reviews with mixed success, it certainly isn't a feature you associate with the historical genre. If we move over to Wyoming and the Arapahos, Loretta Fowler writes that the Arapahos criticised attempts by anthropologists to understand their histories as missing the point. In her work Arapaho Politics, 1851-1978, she writes, quote, Arapahos see their history as a mythological process which operates as a conceptual framework for interpreting and shaping social action, and which is not necessarily related to events as recorded by observers. End quote. There are also issues over who is allowed to know information. It has become a great fear of many American Indian elders that their culture and intellectual heritage is being taken away, and there is a great emphasis on secrecy. The fact that I am part of the historical tradition adds complications, since I use the terminology of the genre, which understandably causes significant offence to Indian tribal elders, who do not take kindly to Euro-Americans, referring to their histories as mythology. Perhaps this is why these accounts have been generally dismissed by historians, and then appear more in anthropological work than ethnography. It is important to recognise these differences, but at the same time it is important to not be overly simplistic when dealing with things. While historians like things to be neat and tidy, they seldom are. You can't just compartmentalise culture. While there are certain distinctions between Native American culture and that of Euro-American historiography, there are considerable differences between various Indian nations. Over-compartmentalisation can create its own realm of problems and leads us down the road of primitive versus civilised peoples, which is a place we are certainly not going to. It is the job of the historian to evaluate the various merits of sources and describe them appropriate weight in the narratives that they form. I just want you to be aware of what ingredients I'm working with here. So, from the Native American side, just what do we have? Well, the easiest way to explain will be to break down what we can call the cultural domain of American Indian social anthropology into three distinct areas, as done by William Bascom in his 1965 article, The Forms of Folklore, in the Journal of American Folklore. Bascom uses the breakdown of myth, legend, and folktale in order for the outsider to be able to understand the various traditional narratives used by the culture. Myths are sacred narratives. They involve no human characters and take place in a different or earlier world. Legends take place in this world and involve human characters and are 
probably the closest thing to historical accounts which existed in Native American culture. Despite the differences, and that to modern ears myths seem distinctly fantastical, both myths and legends are completely true, and were regarded as sacred. This was in contrast to the third category, folktales. These mix human and non-human characters, and were regarded as fictional entertainment. Peter Nabokov, in his work Native Views of History, for the Cambridge History of the Native American Peoples, adds to this the distinctive educational nature of folktales, an element he feels Bascom underplays. This works for our purposes, but I must repeat again that it is a massive oversimplification, but it serves our purposes well enough, and it makes clear that myth isn't something to just be dismissed. Myth was the foundation of the Native American worldview. If you will allow me to turn to the Tlingits of the Northwest and the writings of Federica de Laguna, the story of a Tlingit community, a problem in the relationship between archaeological, ethnological, and historical methods from the Bureau of American Ethnology. Quote, it has been claimed with justice that every people live their own myths, that is, that their conduct in the present reflects what they believe their past to have been, since that past, as well as the present and the future, are aspects of the destiny in which they exhibit themselves, as they think they really are. The Tlingit themselves sense this and use the term Ha-Kagun, for the origin and destiny of their sib, or of their clan, both terms meaning all descendants through the male or female line of a single human or supernatural ancestor, including the totemic animal or bird encountered by their ancestors and the powers and prerogatives obtained from it, as well as their own place in the universe and the ultimate fate of their unborn descendants. End quote. It is also easy to think of myths as static, but they were very much living things and they altered over time. For instance, the origins of the Europeans were later integrated into Indian accounts. The creation story from the Akanagans in British Columbia centres on a pair of twins created by God, who wrote the secrets to eternal life on a piece of paper, but the twins were instructed not to look. The younger twin then stole the paper and lied to God about it. This twin became the ancestor of the Europeans, while the older twin, who followed instructions, became the ancestor of the Native Americans. This remodelling of the past is quite a common feature. Prophecy is an important part of Native folklore, and so what often happens is that prophecies get injected into past events in order to explain what happened. The most famous example of this is something we've dealt with extensively in our membership series, where, following the Spanish conquest of Mexico, the Aztecs created a prophecy about a generation after events that Cortes was a returning god, Quetzalcoatl. This is very much one of those instances 
where the membership feed helps explain the free version. So much for myths, but what of legends? These are something much closer to our understanding of history than myth. A description of them is made by William Simmons in his work, The Mythic Voice, Pequot Folklore from the 17th Century to the Present. Quote, Legend conveys one generation's interpretations to the next. Through legend, people select some experiences, and not others, for retelling. They depict these experiences in terms of motifs and symbols that are available to them at that time. These may come from ancestral tradition or from external sources to which one has been exposed. Legends float through a twilight between what may have happened and what people believe to have happened. Although they are a collective phenomenon, no two individuals tell them in the same way. Through legend, place names and events are pressed into stories that have a life of their own. End quote. How much use can historians make of Indian legends is a matter of great scholarly debate. As far as I'm concerned, they certainly have uses. There are certain pieces of valuable information which are stored in the collective memory of societies. In 1982, Andrew Widget published a study examining Hopi legends concerned with the Pueblo Revolt against the Spanish in 1680, and he found that over the course of 300 years, the Hopi account, which had been preserved through the oral history of legend, matched very well with the account made by the Spanish at the time, and it perfectly preserved the raw emotion felt by the Hopi. Very similar conclusions were drawn by Paul Radin in his study of the Winnebago in the Great Lakes and their accounts of the arrival of the French, although Radin felt that the vested interest of the narrative itself was a feature that could not be ignored. Catherine McLean studied contact between Alaskan Indians and Europeans, and felt that while Indian accounts often worked with those of the Europeans, disagreements between the two were not necessarily problematic. It is not surprising that there are certain aspects of history that the Europeans would not necessarily want to talk about, and she believed that Indian legends might well offer us insights we wouldn't normally get, such as the explorer Robert Campbell taking an Indian wife. There are accounts in the Carolinas of the Catawabas, which go along with the Euro-American accounts of Indians giving land to the Europeans, but which state that their ancestors were too nice, and that the Europeans had no understanding of the etiquette and reciprocal gift-giving. Our final subject matter for today are folk tales. While there are historical elements to myth and legend, folktale is something altogether different. It is openly fiction, but at the same time that doesn't make it worthless information. They preserve a great deal of cultural history in their parables, and the ones we have were produced in centuries of great change for the American Indian population. It isn't entirely unreasonable to think that some history has entered there. Madrona Holden writes that Indian folk tales in the Pacific Northwest 
were used as a way of commenting upon Euro-American society. There are many takedowns of Euro-American materialism present in these, and an attempt to portray the natives as swindling the Europeans. An example is found in a Poetotomy folktale. It centres on an Indian boy called Patija, who has a magical tablecloth. He meets a European soldier, and he uses his magical tablecloth to produce food for the European. The European soldier then uses his magic hat, and demonstrates how it can be used to create more soldiers. He then offers this to Patija in a trade for the tablecloth. Patija doesn't want to do it, but eventually he agrees. He then uses his new soldiers to take back the magic tablecloth from the European. While this is just fiction, it certainly contains a great deal of historical perspective. These aspects of the Native American historical tradition are of course not the only foundation for our historical coverage. We do have writings by Native Americans and archaeology. In short, the field of study is a very exciting one, and one still struck by a central division on the fundamentally contrastive approach between the two sides of the debate. Joe Sandro wrote in his Net Hemish, a history of the Hemes Pueblo. If we accept native North American oral history, then we can start with the ancient people who have been in North America for many thousands of years and still allow for the European and Mediterranean colonists to strengthen or boost the developing culture. This appears to be what the indigenous people have been saying in their oral history, but later the Europeans with their proof positive and show me attitudes have prevailed and remain largely unwilling to consider, much less to confirm, native creation accounts." End quote. This is in contrast to the view of scholars, who are abhorred by the rejection of such fundamental aspects to their discipline as clear authorship and scholarly accountability. This is, I believe, a rather good setup for next time out. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please feel free to visit the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com. That is the place to go for more information about the show, and if you are interested in signing up for our membership program. For the cost of $4.99 per month, you can gain access to our membership feed, giving you access to an extra, exclusive episode every two weeks. You can also follow us on social media. I'm on Twitter, at HistoryJamie, and on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, then feel free to send me an email. The address is thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.